Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're looking at the signals that our own bodies and minds give us, a little bit like the data that we receive from a Formula One car that can enable us to formulate a strategy that can build performance to help us win our own race in life. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hey everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. Thank you as ever for joining wherever you are in the world. I appreciate every single one of you and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I want to jump straight in this week to the first topic that I want to discuss because over the past uh, week or so I've been thinking quite a lot about reliability and performance in relation to the Ferrari power unit failures that we've seen recently and it got me thinking in deeper terms about the performance of all the components on a Formula One car and on our own road cars even the components that we use in our daily lives even in our phones our laptops any of the equipment that we rely upon it all has a usable lifespan and if that lifespan runs out if we reach the end of that lifespan perhaps earlier than we expected or perhaps earlier than we would like earlier than the ideal for what we need it to do, it can be really frustrating. And that's, of course, exactly what happened to Carlos Sainz at the Austrian Grand Prix. The performance, the lifespan of his Ferrari power unit expired about 15 laps before he really needed it to, before the end of the Grand Prix. And it was obviously a spectacular failure. That was the end of that engine's life. It will not see another day. It will be a scrapper and it will have to be replaced with another unit for the next Grand Prix and he will take penalties of course off the back of that. But it got me thinking more and more about how all of these elements of our life, these things we use together with ourselves and our own human performance, how it has a lifespan. It has a certain amount of performance at certain times and when that performance expires we might need to do something about it or if it's looking like it's going to expire. If we're starting to see signs of wear and tear, we might have to do something about it. In your road car, if you start hearing a worrying knocking noise, if you just ignore it, if you continue and let it carry on, it's highly unlikely that it's going to fix itself. And at some point, although you may still be able to drive the car at reduced performance with that knocking noise going on, at some point it will probably expire in the way that Carlos Sainz's Ferrari power unit did a couple of weeks ago. So, This idea of looking after ourselves and after our equipment and reading the signs, looking for the signs and then listening to those signs is something that I thought we could explore a little bit more deeply in today's podcast. When I joined McLaren back in the year 2000, my first role at the team was as a test team mechanic. Now that meant that I worked on Formula One cars, but never at Grand Prix in that first season. My role was to travel around with the test team, and we typically travel right through Europe 
Every single week, we'd be away running our own Formula One cars with our own set of mechanics and engineers, our own trucks, our own tools and equipment, our own garage setup, which would all be identical to the race teams, the ones that you would have seen when you were watching the TV back in those days on a Sunday afternoon. But we had our own separate set of kit. And our role was to take those Formula One cars with our own test drivers, by the way, sometimes using the race drivers, but sometimes dedicated test drivers, and we take those cars and we'd pound them round and round after lap after lap after lap at various test circuits around the world, testing both various setups and performance enhancements, but also testing a number of components from engines to gearboxes to chassis components to wings, aerodynamic pieces, all manner of different components on that car we had to test. And one of the main reasons we would test them was because back then, before any component could go onto a racing car at a Grand Prix event, it had to be what we called proven. It had to be shaken down and run over the course of an entire Grand Prix distance with the test team to prove that it would last the distance of a Grand Prix weekend if it did finally make it onto a race car. And part of our role was exactly that. It was just putting mileage onto things to prove that it would be okay under similar conditions when it came to a Grand Prix weekend. So every one of these components had a finite lifespan. We called it lifing. Each component was lifed. It had a certain number of miles or kilometers that it was designed to do before it would have to be either serviced or retired from competitive use. So those components would be run lap after lap. We'd do Grand Prix simulations at the test track, we would go through an entire Grand Prix weekend sometimes, simulating every single part of the weekend from practice sessions through to practice starts, qualifying. We'd go through a full grid procedure just to make sure we'd covered every single base and that these components would in fact last the lifespan they had been designed to last. I used to find it quite interesting because A, it felt like we were directly contributing to the Grand Prix weekend. So when we went home and the race team took over and took their cars and their kit to whichever venue the Grand Prix was being held, and I'd watch from the television at home, I felt like I was directly involved in that Grand Prix weekend. I felt like I'd made a significant contribution along with my colleagues to whatever the result might be, whatever the outcome might be for us at McLaren. But the other reason I used to find it so fascinating was occasionally these things, in fact, not that occasionally, quite frequently with new components, something would go wrong. Sometimes they would not reach their desired lifespan. They wouldn't get anywhere close to the mileage that they were intended to reach. And of course, at that point, we have to have a full investigation as to why. And because we were the guys on the ground, we were hands on, we were in the field in that moment. Sometimes it was up to us to try and lead the way forward with this, to try and lead whatever change needed to be made, whatever modification or whatever design change. We would be absolutely instrumental in trying to, first of all, figure out what had gone wrong, but then try to come up with a solution or help the designers to come up with a solution that might make it work. Could we run it in a slightly different set of circumstances to a slightly different level? Could we wrap it in a different material that might prevent overexposure to heat, for example? You know, could we see something in our data that might help us shape a way to make it work in the end? Did we need to, in fact, just lower the lifespan of that particular component? Because 
When it was working, it worked really, really well. Gave us great performance, but perhaps it wouldn't last as long. So maybe, maybe we had to lower the limits that it was able to cope with for the lifespan that it was intended to have. Maybe we could still get it through a Grand Prix weekend if, in practice sessions, we didn't run it so hard in terms of things like an engine, for example. We could reduce the rev limit of that engine for the practice sessions, knowing that we could then increase it for qualifying and the race to give us that extra performance when it really mattered. Maybe we had proven that it wouldn't do that maximum performance all the way through the weekend. But investigating those failures and understanding the signs that were being shown to us, sometimes before we had an absolute outright failure, there would be a sign, something in the data that would just elude to the fact this component was starting to show signs of not behaving in the way it was intended, starting to show early signs, perhaps, of failure, of fatigue. And could we spot those signs? Could we find ways to see those signs before the failure actually happened? And over time, what we became very good at as a test team was exactly that, looking out for and spotting the signs before we had a catastrophic failure. Because that would obviously save us money, it might save that component, it might allow us to continue our run plan, albeit at a lower performance level. It might allow us to take that component off the car, service it, repair a part that might be broken, or come up with a solution that might prevent it failing in the future, and then put it back on the car and run it again later at some point in that test. We became very good at that process, seeing the signs, understanding the signs, listening to those signs, and then acting upon those signs to try and prevent the outright failure from ever happening. Of course, today, things are done slightly differently. There is minimal amount of actual track testing. The idea of standalone test teams is a thing of the past. Teams have had to reduce their numbers of personnel, They've had to cut costs dramatically, not just in recent times to fit in with this budget cap, but also in previous years, long before that, they've had to lower their headcount. They've had to adhere to rules that highly limit the number of days that any team or driver can test pre-season or during the season. So we can't operate in the same way we used to. And actually, it was quite an inefficient way of doing it, because what's happened as a result of these cost-based changes is that we've developed much more efficient ways of finding similar solutions to those problems. So today we still go through that same process of looking for those early signs. We still have to prove these components, prove that they will last the lifespan that the component was designed for. But now we don't do it by pounding a car around lap after lap after lap with a set of a separate group of 60 or 70 people in a test team We now do it all digitally. We do it virtually. We have simulation tools that are highly advanced. FEA, or finite element analysis, will test components to destruction if need be, but all in the virtual world. And we're still looking for signs. Those signs are a a tiny bit different to the ones that we used to see. We get virtual hints or signals. We get signals in data much more than we ever get a feeling from a driver or any visual inspection to the same degree that we would have done having had a car running around and then coming into the pits to be poured over by a group of mechanics. So it's just different ways of finding the same kinds of information that we need to prove those components will work in the environment they need to work over the time frame and lifespan that we need them to work in a Grand Prix team. The point that I want to make here is that 
during all of those learnings, during all of that research and studying and testing that we went through as a test team and that teams go through today in the digital world, in the simulation world, it's all about trying to get a car to the end of a Grand Prix in the fastest, most high-performance way possible. And when it comes to individual components, part of that testing or that analysis phase before the car actually goes onto a racetrack and runs in a live session, part of that analysis is to find out, first of all, what the lifespan or the predicted lifespan of those each of those components is, but also what we realized and we discovered when we were going through this process all those years ago was that even if a component was designed to last 400 kilometers before it then needed a service, if we found that that was not something that was capable of doing at the maximum performance level we needed it to do, there might still be a way of getting that component to the end of a Grand Prix. The 300 kilometers of race day, of Grand Prix day, we could still achieve that by lowering the performance level at other times, by resting that component, by servicing that component more frequently, by putting it into a slightly less harsh environment for a period of time by protecting it with a heat-proof wrap, for example, or a coating onto a metallic component. Lots of different solutions could enable that component to get to the end of a Grand Prix, even though it might have hoped we could just run it flat out all the way through a Grand Prix weekend and get to the very end. If that didn't work out that way, it wasn't the end of the world. And actually, it might have ended up proving that the better way the way that was most efficient and the way we would actually get most performance out of it was to lower some of those limits, lower some of the time frames that it was being operated at its very highest level. We realized that it was actually very rare to need maximum performance for the entirety, certainly of a Grand Prix weekend, but even the entirety of a Grand Prix. That might seem like a strange thing to say because between lights going out and the flag dropping at the end of the race, the obvious thing is to just go flat out is to push as hard as you can because presumably everyone else is doing the same. But in reality, it doesn't have to be that way. In reality, you push when you need to push, but if you don't need to push because there's a period of the Grand Prix where you're not under pressure, where you've built a gap perhaps and your main rivals might be struggling on their tyres so they're having to back off to cool things down a little bit. Maybe your main rivals have made a pit stop, giving you a little bit of breathing space. Well, if you get that breathing space, you need to take it. You can back off your engine a little bit under a safety car period. You can turn things down, for example. You can lower your rev limit. You can lift and coast a lot more. You can go much more easy on your tyres to allow them to just cool down a little bit whilst you don't need to be pushing. And one of the biggest learnings from that entire period was gaining an understanding of where the signs were of when you needed to push and when you could afford to just back off a little bit. Not even just affording to back off, but when it might be beneficial to back off, to hold some performance back, to recoup, recharge, recharge batteries, lower temperatures, save a bit of fuel, cool your tires down before you get ready to go again when you absolutely need to. It's looking for the signals, the signs, the data, the predictive tools that we were able to use to help us do that became hugely valuable. Looking at competitors' performance and looking at their strategies, all of these different elements had to be fed into a model that could then predict the times during a Grand Prix or during a Grand Prix weekend when we just had to go flat out or when we could afford to back off and save that performance for later. 
Now, I'm sure many of you can already see where this particular pit lane life lesson is heading, because whilst I've been talking about components and technology and engines and Formula One cars, exactly the same kind of ethos applies to us. Of course, we also have to know when to push, when to hold back, when to save a little bit of performance, when to recover. And we might not have teams of engineers staring at screens and screens of data looking for those early warning signs of potential failure. We may not have an alarm bell or a flashing light that pops up on our dashboard to tell us when something's about to go pop, but we do have our own version of that. Our bodies have our own version of those early warning signs that we need to tap into if we want to get the maximum out of our bodies and ourselves. It's something that some people find much harder to do than others. Being aware of and then listening to and then acting upon those signals that our own body and our own minds continuously give us about our current performance level, about our current status, about how much performance we have left in the tank, how much we need to back off and recover. These are signals we're being given all the time, and yet most people tend to ignore them. Depending what you do with your life and how hard you're pushing at any given moment, in whatever field you're operating in, we're always getting those signals. And the signals can be different, of course, but actually the way our bodies and minds work is incredibly clever. It's a really simple system. We get those gentle, preliminary, early warning signs, and they can be as simple as feeling a little bit tired, the occasional yawn during the day when you wouldn't normally be yawning. You might get a very occasional twinge from a knee joint if you are someone who's particularly active, an athlete, for example. You might get mild headaches, maybe strained eyes if you've been staring at a screen for too long. These are all the very first early warning signals that our incredible bodies and minds are constantly relaying to us that most people ignore and push on through. And then when that does happen, if we continue without taking any action, without servicing those components, without giving some time to rest and recover, the signals we get sent will become a little bit more severe. The headaches will become worse. You might get blurred vision after continually staring at these screens in your office. You might get repetitive strain injuries on a wrist that continually types all day long. That knee pain will get worse and worse until it becomes even more of a problem, until it becomes severe. And the tiredness will only continue to escalate the longer you ignore those signals. And of course, we all do it. I'm not sitting here saying that I listen to all of those signals and I act upon them at the very first stage. None of us do that. And actually, there are plenty of occasions in life when that's not the right thing to do. If we go back to the Formula One examples and we think about the Ferrari engines last year, you could think about the Mercedes engine problems that they had. They took the decision, and I think Ferrari are going to take a very similar one this year, but last year Mercedes took this decision even though they knew they had an engine that was fragile, that had reliability concerns, they still were going to run it at the maximum they felt they could get away with over a Grand Prix weekend. They weren't going to back the engine off to give lower performance in the hope that it might last a little bit longer. They were going to go through a Grand Prix weekend, winding the engine up as high as they dare to give maximum performance, knowing that for the following Grand Prix, they might have to take another engine, which comes with a penalty, 
but they would be back up to full performance again when they put a new unit in. And they decided that the penalty was worth taking because the performance of pushing on through, cranking that engine up to the max, was worthwhile taking the hit on. How many times did we see Valtteri Bottas in particular having to start the race from right at the back because he'd taken engine penalties, but knowing they had such performance in that car, particularly with a fresh engine operating at its highest level, quite often they could still cut through the entire field with their performance advantage and find their way right back up to the front, challenging for podiums and even race wins. And if we look at that example in relation to our own lives, there are definitely some analogies that we can take from it. If you are an entrepreneur starting a business or a youngster starting out in a career on a new career path, you may well feel it's absolutely justified to continually push on through almost with no sleep in those early days because that's what's going to give you the advantage. If your competitors who are also in that startup phase of a new business, if they're not sleeping, if they're pushing all hours, if they're getting up early, starting work early and not sleeping much because they're working well late into the night, surely you have to do the same to match them, to be better than them. And there is an argument that absolutely that's what's got to happen in those days. Nobody else is going to work at that rate for you. No one else is going to have the same consideration of your new business that's your baby. No one's going to have the passion for it that you've got. No one else can give anywhere near the same differentiation than you can by just pushing on with that enormous enthusiasm and determination because it was your idea in the very beginning. In the same way that if you're a youngster starting to climb the career ladder, you might well feel that you've got to do the same thing. You might well feel that it's worth your while putting in the silly hours early on to give yourself an advantage, to churn out some amazing work that might impress your boss and just give you that big break that might create an opportunity for you that could benefit you further down the line. And even though the effort required to do that might be astronomical, it might mean days with minimal amount of sleep and you really suffer physically. Those signs that I was talking about might be pinging off all over the place around your body and it may well be that you decide in that particular moment in time, in those set of circumstances, it's worth ignoring the signals just for a little while and pushing on through to get the result that you know you can achieve. A result you only feel you can achieve by going to those levels. It's a little bit like a, a Formula One race strategy that has a driver sat on pole position they need a great start and then they're going to push like crazy for the first 10 laps of the race to build a gap from the car behind. They're going to give it everything. They're going to use every ounce of life that those tyres on that car possibly have in them. Take everything from them. But hopefully in doing so, build a gap over 10 or 15 laps over your next car back in the queue to enable you to make a pit stop where you can service the car, you can regenerate, you can take that moment in time to reset, you get your brand new tyres on, you recharge the performance of the car with the fresh tyres and you go back out there and you do it again. Yes, absolutely, you may well feel like you've taken a hit by making that early pit stop when maybe your rivals have taken a different strategy where they have not pushed to the limit, where they've conserved performance, they've gone a little bit more steady at the start of the race, they've run longer into the Grand Prix before they make their pit stop. Maybe by doing that, they can make one less pit stop than you because you've pushed so hard so early, 
and you've had to stop very early and then you've got to go and do that again to go through the middle stint because your rivals have either closed that gap completely or even overtaken you whilst you were in the pits. So now you've got the fresh tyres on, you've got the performance back up to its maximum, you can give it everything and you can get past them again. You can start to build a lead again. But then what happens? You start to run out of performance. You can keep pushing as hard as you like, but eventually the signals, the signs that things are starting to wear out, starting to degrade or lose performance, those signs will come in the end. And at some point, you just have to listen to them because otherwise all performance disappears. You break down, the car stops, the car runs out of all grip, you slide off the racetrack, your engine goes bang. Something happens that means it's an absolute full stop. Your race is done. So at some stage, of course, you've got to listen to those signs. But there is total freedom for a Formula One race team, as well as you and I, to take some artistic license, to take our own experience and look at our own situation and apply those rules, apply those signals, however we feel necessary at the time. To come back to the example of the entrepreneur, it may well be that your first stint is that phase when you are really pushing hard just to get the idea off the ground. And it may be that you might have to work for three or four nights without getting any sleep or minimal sleep, without eating properly, suffering massive amounts of fatigue. But if you know you've got a big deadline or a big opportunity on the horizon that that big push just might get you towards it might be worthwhile because if you get to deliver your first investor presentation and one of those investors ends up becoming a partner in the organization, taking on your challenge with you, funding the next phase of your startup business, well, that would have all been worthwhile. The suffering in the short term that you took in that very first stint of your little race may well be worthwhile. Because then you deliver the presentation and you go home and sleep. You let them mull it over. They think about it. You let them look through what you've put all of those hours into and you go home and you you recover. You sleep for a few days even perhaps. That's your pit stop. That's you coming into the pits after that really big push in the early part of your race. Having a bit of recovery time, resetting, getting your fresh tyres on and then you come back out and you go again for the second stint. And it may be that that strategy works well for you. As long as you make your pit stop before the final warning signs happen, before it's too late. And only you will know when that is. But as long as you can get into the pits before everything falls apart, you can make the strategy work for you. For other people, of course, it will be totally different. For other people, they might be in a situation where they're playing a much longer game. It may not be such an aggressive early first int. They may be looking at a much bigger, longer-term picture. And in that situation, it might be more about continuous, constant maintenance of your own body and mind to keep you going for the long stint. You might be doing a really long first phase of your race where you just have to continually look at the early warning signs. Keeping yourself fresh every single day might be the way to go for you. Listening when you see that little yawn creeping in in the middle of the afternoon, when you start to get those headaches or aches and pains, whatever it might be, just listen to it. Sit up and take notice of those signals. I said earlier, it's a fantastically clever system that our bodies have adapted and evolved over many, many years. And if you ignore that, it might be like ignoring that really annoying knocking sound that you hear on your car's engine. Like I said earlier, if you ignore it for too long, it's not going to fix itself. It's only going to get worse. And if you continue to ignore it, 
it may well expire. If you're in this long phase of your race, a long game, a long stint, you can't afford to have the more serious problems creep in. You haven't got the bigger pit stop, the longer phase of recovery, because you need to be constantly on your game. There is no big break coming up for you. This is going to be a one-stop race, so you might get a pit stop at some point, but you've got to keep going for a long period of time over and over again, performing at the level you need to perform at. It's not about maximum performance for a short spell, come in, take a break, and then go again. For you, it might be very different. It might be a constant maintaining of a standard set level that you need to achieve every single day. And to do that, you need to be running on all cylinders. Everything needs servicing regularly. You need to be looking after yourself in the same way you might want to look after a really good car. Of course, as we all go through life and we get a clearer understanding of our own performance levels, of our own bodies and our own minds, we will start to build up our own little data picture, our own picture of where our limits lie. And of course, once we have that understanding, it's much easier for us to put in that preventative maintenance to prevent any of those signals or signs that I was talking about before, the moments of failure, the points on the brink of failure, the moments leading up to those points of failure. Before any of that happens, we can maintain ourselves in a way that might prevent us getting anywhere near that line that we don't want to cross. And that preventative maintenance can come from all manner of different things, from eating healthily, putting the right fuel into our bodies. Again, we can tailor that to our specific needs. If you're going for that short, fast burst of an early stint, you might want to short fuel yourself. You can put in different fuels. You can eat different foods that will give you that burst of energy. It might well be that if a very short-term fix is needed just for a specific moment in time, a couple of coffees is what you need just to get you close to where you need to be in that moment. Of course, you're going to pay the price for it. You're going to take that inevitable hit after you've been caffeinated for a period of time. But if during that period where the caffeine got you to that level of performance that you needed, if during that spell you got the job done, you created some advantage for yourself, created opportunities for yourself, maybe you're willing to take that hit. Maybe the crash afterwards is okay. You can afford to take a moment once the job's been completed to recoup and recover. A little bit like a Mercedes strategy of last year, going all out during a Grand Prix, using every ounce of performance an engine had, knowing that there's no way it's going to do another Grand Prix weekend. So you take the hit at the end of that race, you're going to take an engine penalty next time out, but by putting another one in next time, you're going to recoup that performance further down the line. It's a similar kind of thing. But if you're playing a longer game, well, the caffeine isn't what you want. The caffeine's not going to help you in that moment. So you have to listen to the signals. You have to look for which type of preventative maintenance is going to get you to where you need to be. A different dietary regime is going to help you in a different scenario of life. A health and fitness regime tailored, specifically tailored to your requirements and your needs is what you have to start looking for depending on what your goals are in life and what your strategy is to go and get those goals. Obviously, it's not just your health and your fitness and your diet that needs maintenance. Your mental health, your mental well-being is a huge part, as we all know, a huge part of what helps to generate whatever performance we need to generate at any specific moment. Mental health has an unbelievable bearing on what we can deliver on any given day, and it's affected by so many different things. 
In terms of preventative maintenance, only we know about our bodies and our minds exactly what we need to do to maintain that level, that calmness, that preparedness for going into whatever type of battle we're going into on a daily basis, whether it's in our social lives, personal lives, whether it's our work lives, our business lives. Are we highly stressed? Can we find ourselves in highly stressed situations? And if so, what methods have worked in the past to allow us to alleviate some of that stress, to bring us back to a a balance that's going to allow us to perform at the level we need to perform at? We've been given signals our entire life when these levels have reached critical stages, where they've started to reach those levels. We get the early warning signs. I'm sure there must be times where everybody's ignored them and those levels have gone up a notch. And we've probably, many of us, reached the critical moments in life where those levels have got to such a stage that the alarm bells are ringing. Some of us may have gone even way beyond that. Many of us will have gone way beyond that and needed some kind of full repair when things have gone wrong. But those are our data points. If we were a Formula One team, we would be plotting those on graphs. We'd be analysing all of those moments in life, those signals that we've received. We'd be looking for patterns in those signals and trying to overlay the graphs on top of each other, looking for repetition, looking for things that we can now look at today and say, listen, if we see this sort of signal, history shows us it's probably going to lead on to this. And actually, if you look back through the data, when we did this, it helped it. And those are the kind of things that we can look back at our own lives in exactly the same way. We might not have the graphs laid out in front of us. We might have the screens and screens of data. But we know what's happened to us in the past better than anyone else. We know which signals we receive from our own minds or our own body on a regular basis. We also know what happens if we ignore them. And I'm sure most of us know how we can prevent those signals getting worse. If we get the first little early warning sign, what have we done in the past that's helped? Is there something that we've changed in our lives, in our diet or our regime that stopped those warning signals coming? Because we haven't got to a level where the alarm bells have started ringing. All of these little data sets, these data points that have accumulated over our lives are hugely important. And yet most people ignore them. They're not aware of them. If we can become aware of them, we can start to build a strategy of our own for working through our days, working through our weeks, our months, our years, working through our life in a way that can be far more efficient, far more productive and at a much higher level of performance over the period of time that we need it. And so just like the components of a Formula One car, we have a lifespan. We have the overall indeterminate lifespan that none of us have the answer to how long it's going to be. The period of our entire life is an unknown. We can maintain ourselves, we can look after ourselves, try and extend that as long as possible and live a happy, fulfilled and active life if that's what we want for as long as we can maintain that for. But we also have performance requirements at different times during that lifespan. We have periods of time when we need to be pushing flat out and others where we can just ease off a little bit, where we can rest and recuperate, where we can grow and expand our knowledge, our skills for when we really need to go hard again and we can utilise those, we can deploy those new tools in our armoury. It's in exactly the same way that a Formula One team approaches a Grand Prix. They look at the entirety of a Grand Prix and they have to apportion 
periods of time when they can really push and other periods where they have to back off. At some point, they'll even have to come into the pits and actually stop the car. They'll have to stop the car and service it. They may have to change components like tyres and then have to go again. In the past, we've had to stop and literally refuel those cars. That's the pit stop. We all need pit stops in our lives, in our days, all the way through our life. We need to take moments in time to take a break, to stop and take stock of what we're up to. Are we on the right path? Do we need to keep pushing or can we just back off a little bit? If we back off a tiny bit, 10%, can we maintain our performance for much longer? These are all questions that we often ask in hindsight after it's all gone wrong. And if we start asking those questions before the race begins, Formula One teams do it on a Saturday night. They formulate their race strategy. They give themselves multiple options of race strategy before they go into the big event. And we can do the same sorts of things. We can analyze our own data. We can look for those patterns of performance. We can look for the things that will guide us the best way we know how through our race, through our Grand Prix, through the big moments in our life. And by doing that, we can maximize the lifespan of the elements that we're made up from, of the components that we're built from. And by doing that, we give ourselves the best shot of winning. Okay, before we move it on to the next topic that I want to cover, I just at this point want to briefly say or remind you that if you're enjoying the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast, either today or any of the previous episodes that you've listened to, just please take a moment to engage somehow with the podcast by liking, subscribing, following, leaving me a five-star rating if you've enjoyed it, and a very quick review if you're listening on Apple would mean the world to me. So please, please take a moment if you can, and that really is all it takes to just do those things for me in exchange for me putting my time and effort into this podcast. Thank you so much. Um, Now we're going to move it on to the second topic for today. And this one stems uh, from a moment that I had last week where I was at Silverstone. I was speaking at an event for a big company uh, in the wing building at Silverstone. And on that same day, one of the other rooms at the Silverstone wing building was hosting the finals of the F1 in schools competition. Uh, Now, if you don't know what that is, it's an absolutely brilliant initiative. It's a not-for-profit organisation that essentially uses Formula One as a model to inspire and educate children of school ages. Uh, I think it's from sort of nine, school age nine and upwards, um, in STEM subjects and, of course, in Formula One as well. And they utilise the skill sets around Formula One in aerodynamics, engineering, teamwork and team building, Uh, marketing, this portfolio of skills that they can build inside this group of kids. And of course, they use it in this competition where they get to design and make small model cars that have to drive down or run down a runway, um, minimizing drag and looking at all of the different properties that make a car cut through the air quickly, looking at rolling resistance, drag resistance, aerodynamic qualities. They have to build it together. They have to work together as a team. There's a whole set of skills and challenges they have to overcome, but they do it as a group inside these schools. And then they go through a series of competitions where their car has to compete down this sort of slot car run against other schools and eventually the competition culminates in the finals that were happening this week at Silverstone and it's an amazing initiative it really is a fantastic project I've been involved at certain stages uh, over the years I think it's absolutely amazing what it's done not only because it does 
offer something brilliant for the children in that it's an exciting project. It gets them out of the classroom. It offers something different to the normal education system can offer. But also the other element to what they do here is it is inspirational. And I know that if I had had something like this when I was a kid at school, I would have been utterly inspired. I know I would have been because it would have opened my eyes to a whole set of possibilities that at that age I had no idea even existed. And it's unbelievable the number of children that go through this program and then come out the other side desperate to either work in Formula One or somewhere else in this high-end engineering or aerospace industries. Industries that are not very prominent when it comes to careers education in the existing school framework today. And so the F1 in schools program is absolutely brilliant because of that inspirational effect that it has on children, opening up their eyes to something bigger than might be on their horizons at that stage in life. And it's that inspiration that I thought we'd explore a little bit more today. Because inspiration comes in all manner of shapes and forms. It's everywhere. It's all around us. But it's also something that can be quite difficult to quantify because what's inspirational to one person will not be for somebody else. I see Formula One and I did see Formula One when I was much, much younger as an inspirational thing to watch, to see happen before my very eyes. Watching the technology on display, the drivers doing their thing, the people bursting out of the garage to do pit stops was massive inspiration for me. And it's an inspirational trail that I followed with huge passion and was lucky enough to create an entire career out of it. But other people watched Formula One and still watch Formula One today and have zero interest. For them, it might be football. For them, it might be aeroplanes. It might be something completely different. But what F1 in schools is doing is taking what many people see as an inspirational subject or industry of Formula One and taking that inspirational subject matter and taking it directly to the children who are in the right area to be inspired by it. The children who are interested in studying science, technology, engineering and mathematics, those subjects, those STEM subjects that are right at the very heart of the Formula One industry, that Formula One is built upon. It's those children who will already have a natural tendency to want to gravitate towards industries like that. Not necessarily Formula One, but industries like that. So the Formula One in Schools program goes into the schools. It finds those children and it presents them with this unbelievably inspirational material, this opportunity to go ahead and get involved in something that there is no way the actual regular schools program can ever entertain to that level. And what it made me think more about was this idea of inspiring people, particularly a younger generation, because we all have the power and the capability to do that. Formula One can do that on an enormous scale because of the sheer size and impact that it has on a global level to so many people. But as individuals, we also have the power and ability, maybe even a responsibility to inspire those people around us. As parents, it's quite literally part of our job. We should be there inspiring our own children for a brilliant, bright future, whatever that might look like. It doesn't mean they have to follow in the paths that we've taken, but perhaps we should be thinking a little bit more about how we can inspire our children and the people around us 
to do something bigger or something better, to open up the world to these people, particularly the younger generation, open up their world way beyond how closed it might be at this stage in life. If they've come through the standard education system, it's a relatively closed system. It's not necessarily particularly inspirational in the most part. And of course, there are going to be exceptions. I know that. They're going to be brilliant teachers who inspire. They're going to be great schools themselves that offer hugely inspirational opportunities to those children. But I'm talking in the most part as a sweeping generalisation, we emerge as kids out of our school system not necessarily brimmed with inspiration from that education sector. Any inspiration we might have might have come from outside that. It might have come from watching a famous footballer that we love and we want to emulate. It might have been that we watched some Formula One or our parents watched some Formula One and that's what's inspired us. It could be absolutely anything else. It could be the fashion industry. It could be a human rights issue that you're passionate about. Climate change. It could be absolutely anything. The younger generation can take inspiration from anywhere. But because of that very fact, we also have a responsibility to make sure that whatever inspiration we give is a right one. It's a responsible one. As parents, our values, our beliefs and our behaviours are the very first thing that our children get to understand. They get to see, they get to witness And of course, that maintains in the most part throughout their entire childhood until eventually they grow up and they leave home and they take with them all of those learnings, those lessons that we've taught them, the ideas, the values that we've hopefully passed on together with any inspirational material, any inspirational examples that we might have set for them. They take that away as they move on in life and they go and put it to use in whatever they go on to achieve further down the road. If I think back to my own parents and my childhood, I'm not sure that my parents did very much to particularly inspire me to go and do something amazing with my life. I don't think they inspired me to go and have some crazy, wacky, brilliant, different career. It certainly didn't really inspire me to go and do Formula One. That was something I completely did independently of my parents' wishes. I think if I'd really followed my parents' wishes, not that they ever really expressed these wishes, but my feeling was that they would have loved it at the time if I just followed a very traditional route, gone on and studied A-levels and then got on to university and had a much more traditional career. And that was the path I was on until I took inspiration myself from living in the area surrounded by Brands Hatch or near Brands Hatch. I saw motor racing happening before my very eyes. I was watching it on television, of course, but I was seeing it. I was hearing it in the village where I lived. I could hear Formula One cars testing in the background to my childhood. That unbelievable noise that Formula One created back then was inspiration for me. Seeing people coming from all across Europe, descending on my little village to come and see the Grand Prix that was happening every other year at the time. That was inspirational. Seeing the teams roll in in these giant, glorious trucks. The team members coming for dinner at the pub that was next door to my house. That was all inspirational for me. Those were inspirational moments. But if I also think back to my childhood and my parents and their parenting style, they were hugely inspirational for me when it came to me being a parent. My parents 
were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they were great parents. My mum, amazing parent, amazing grandparent. My dad was the only dad in the street that would be out playing football with us on a weekend, dragging us down the street on sledges when it snowed. That was my dad. And so now I do exactly those same things with my kids and their friends, if that's what they want to do, on a snowy day around here. I will happily take all the kids from our street over to the village and play football with them, along with my own children. I'll happily do that, and that comes from the inspiration that my dad gave me as his parenting style was back then. My mum is one of the most loving, caring, thoughtful mums that you could wish for. She was the mum that everybody wanted to come round and hang out with when we were kids. That's inspiration right there, because it taught me how to be a great parent. It inspired me to go and do those things when I became a parent much later down the line, and it's exactly what I've done. It instilled those values in me because I saw it happening in front of me. The inspiration was there for me to witness and take away. And that is something that I think we should all be thinking a little bit more about. How are we inspiring people? Who are we inspiring? What are we inspiring them to do? What kind of behaviours are we displaying in front of our children or in front of our colleagues? If we're running a business, one of the most important things you can do is inspire your workforce. Not to inspire them to work harder, but to inspire them to believe in what you believe in. So they can share your vision. They can have your same inspiration and be pushing in the same direction as you. That's how you build a great company. You inspire from the very top. And then the next layer of management is encouraged to inspire the layer below them. And everybody inspires each other because they could have freedom to think outside the box and put these ideas forward that can make the company stronger. We inspire people by doing extraordinary things. Ordinary things are not particularly inspirational. Extraordinary things are exactly what people look up to. We remember the things that were different, that stand out. And that can be both for good and bad reasons. And it's our responsibility when trying to inspire particularly the younger generation to make sure that our behaviours or our beliefs, our values stand out for being good, for being positive. If we can inspire in a positive way, what an incredible legacy to leave behind. And so my words of advice around this particular subject are to go and do something extraordinary. If you're a parent, Take your children on an extraordinary adventure. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money. It's not about paying for things. It's not about money. It's about doing something that might just inspire your children to think differently to the way most normal people think. Just last weekend, my wife and our son, our 12-year-old boy, went to climb Mount Snowdon in Wales. They just went down on a particular Saturday that had good weather and the two of them set off really early in the morning and they got to the very top and they did it together. They helped each other. They encouraged each other. They just did it. Now, not everybody in his class went and climbed a mountain that day. And so it was extraordinary. And he came away utterly inspired to go on more adventures, to climb more mountains. He's already setting plans of where he wants to go, what he wants to see, what he wants to achieve. That one particular day where together with his mum, they went off and did something amazing was unbelievably inspirational for him, even way more than we thought it might be.
It didn't cost money. It cost time and it cost a bit of determination. But the result was extraordinary. The result was something way bigger and better than we thought it would be. It's inspiration to me as well as it is to my 12-year-old son. It's something that I would like to think that my wife and I will leave behind as a great legacy, I hope, in that all four of our children have been inspired to be adventurers, to go on their own adventures. My two older children, who are grown up now, are more adventurous than I am. They go off on travels around the world. They inspire me, which is an incredible position to be in. To be inspired by your own children is almost going full circle. I've spent all of my life so far trying, hoping that I might be inspiring in a positive way for my children. And yet now they are returning that favour and inspiring me every day by doing things that are out of this world. Going places, seeing things at the drop of a hat, just going to do it. Not worrying about it, not thinking about it too much, just going on the adventure. Now, that's exactly the way that I have tried to live my life for a long period of time now. My wife's exactly the same. My wife, in fact, inspires me all of the time for exactly that. And now our children are returning that back to us. So what can you do to inspire your children or the people around you? Your offspring may well be very different people to you, but there's a very good chance that some of the things that inspire you or have inspired you in the past may well inspire them. They have your genes, let's not forget. There are going to be some similarities. So the important thing here is not to do things that are not true to you, to try and fake some inspiration out of nowhere, to try and inspire them to do the thing that you feel like they want to do. Inspiration only really works if it's from the heart, if it's genuine, if it's authentic. And so inspiration is not something that should be shoehorned into a conversation or shoehorned into a life. It shouldn't be forced. It's just about thinking about what things you believe in, what things you enjoy doing, what inspired you in the past. Have your kids got the opportunity to see the same kind of things that piqued your imagination when you were younger? Living a life that has meaning and purpose, living a life that serves others more than it serves you, can be hugely inspirational. Doing things for other people and allowing your children to see you doing things for other people can be massively inspirational. It doesn't mean they're going to come running up to you and go, Daddy, that was amazing. I want to be like you. But it might just sink in. The things that my mum did, her character, her happiness and her care and comfort for me and everyone around her sunk into me as a kid. It wasn't something she told me. It was something that was subconsciously absorbed by me over the many years that I spent with her. It was inspirational, though. So look, my overall message here is just to try and think a bit more, become more aware of the things that we're doing, the things that we're saying, because we don't know who's listening to those things, what might be being absorbed. Our children might be witnessing behaviours and actions of ours that will impact their future lives, even though we can't see it, even though it's not being discussed. Our behaviours at work can have a, a similarly powerful impact in both positive and negative sense. As I said earlier, if you're leading a company or if you're a leader within a company, your actions and behaviours are actively being watched, are being looked up to by the people that you're leading. 
and so a conscious thought process about exactly what you're doing and saying at almost all times in those scenarios is crucial. Because what you do and say leads, inspires the team of people beneath you. I've said many times before, my old boss, Ron Dennis, the CEO of McLaren, was one of the most inspirational figures I've ever met, let alone worked with. And yet I only spoke to him on a very small handful of occasions in my 10 years at the team. With such few direct interactions, it would be easy to think that how could he possibly inspire me? But he inspired me through his actions, the way he led the company, the way I saw him speak publicly, the way I saw him treat others, the way I saw his attention to detail build a company, build success within a company. Because I witnessed those things. I saw them happening all right from afar, but he was hugely inspirational to me. I have no idea whether he had any conception of being inspirational to others at the time he was doing it. He was just operating his life in the way that he believed was true and the right way to do it. But because of the way he went about those things, he inspired me and hundreds and hundreds of other people. To a point where I still think about Ron Dennis and the lessons that I've learned from him indirectly in many cases. I still think about them today. I try and pass them on to other people. I'm passing many of them on to you. And I hope you might find some of those things as inspirational as I have. So inspiration can come from anywhere. I've met hundreds of inspirational kids over the years through school programs, through the F1 in schools program that I have done work with in the past. I've met kids in Africa living on the street with nothing to their name, barely enough clothes to cover them, kicking around a ball made out of rags tied together in a great big knot, and yet with the biggest smiles on their faces. That was inspirational. So inspiration is everywhere around us. It can be. The F1 in Schools program has taken the world of Formula One, the inspirational elements from it, and taken it directly to the people that they believe they can help most. They've taken the certain elements out of this industry and put them in front of the people they think they can benefit. But we can do exactly the same. We can think about the elements of our lives that could be inspirational to others. Have we survived some major trauma? Have we gone through some really difficult times and come out the other side? And are there other people that might be suffering the same things? Maybe our story could be inspirational to them. Have we succeeded in business where so many younger people are trying to embark on that journey at a very early stage? Maybe our story can be inspirational to them. Every single one of us has something that's extraordinary about us, something that only we have or that only we can do this well, something that we've done in the past, something we continually aspire to do. Do we have a smile on our face every single day? It could be as simple as that. That can be one of the most inspirational things in the world. So my message to you is to think about what it is that's extraordinary about you. What stories can you tell that can be out of the ordinary and who can we tell them to to benefit the most? Being inspirational can create an amazing legacy for us, but can also lead on a generation to go and do some things that are even bigger and better than we might have done in the past. I'm trying to do it with my own kids. I'm sure all parents out there are trying to do the same. 
but you don't have to be a parent. Every single one of us has inspiration inside of us. It's just a case of digging down deep and finding out what that is and who we can pass it on to. Okay, folks, that is it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, please, please, please leave me a rating and reviews. Leave me a follow, a like, a subscribe, whatever it is. Drop me a message on Instagram. I'd appreciate any of it. But have a wonderful week. And whatever it is you're up to, remember this. Do the right things and do the things right.